Well, the last time we studied together in the book of John, Jesus had healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. That's a long time, isn't it? Jesus had come by and see this man lying down on the ground next to the pool of Bethesda, and, and, and he saw Jesus, and, and they talked. And he talked about how difficult it was for him to get into the pool. I mean, the theory was that, uh, that you know, anytime the, the water was disturbed, whoever jumped in first would be healed. Now, we talked about that last week. We don't know if that theory is correct or not. But here is this man who had an idea of how to be healed. Yet Jesus had a completely different idea. Imagine how difficult it would be to be sitting next to that pool for that long. But that hope. But instead of just being kicked in the pool, I mean, Jesus could have had the water flutter a little bit and kind of kicked him really quick and got him in there. Instead of doing that, Jesus just outright heals him. He talks to him and he heals him. So this guy is so excited about it and Jesus tells him to pick up his mat and he goes running into the temple area. He hasn't been there for 38 years because he was unclean. He couldn't enter into that area. He'd been left out of worship. He'd been left out of fellowship. And now, you know, at this point, he's ready to cry out and worship because he has been healed. But then, of course, you, you have the religious police. Okay, not really police, but you know what I mean. We've all experienced those at church at one time or another, right? And they got a hold of him. They could have cared less about a story. They were mad because he was carrying around his mat. Because that was considered work. And you didn't work on the Sabbath. And we talked last week about all the different rules. Even today, you can't press an elevator button uh, because of their rules over in Israel. And, and all this kind of stuff. You don't cook and all this kind of stuff. But, but basically, they, they got a hold of him and said, whoa, whoa, sir. Put down your mat and back away. And this guy is all excited. He's like, no, he told me to carry it, so I'm going to carry it. And this really irritated these guys. And if you want to make a religious person irritated, you break a rule. You know, it's like baseball. Anybody watch baseball? Okay. Are there unwritten rules in baseball? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of unwritten rules that you're supposed to know. And it's kind of like this in the religious community. You know, you break an unwritten rule and legalism gets involved and people get upset. And they're like, who told you, who did this to you? You know, one, because they shouldn't have been healing on the Sabbath. And he goes, well, I, I don't know his name. I, can, I can't remember. But imagine this, the day he met Jesus was the day he was healed. How cool is that? The day he met Jesus, he was healed. Now, we have the same thing. When we meet Jesus, we can be healed. We can be healed. We think it's, oh, I got to be lame. I can't walk. I got to sit by the pool for 38 years. But we have so much baggage in our life. When we meet, truly meet Jesus, we can be healed. And this is where we pick up today in verse 16 of John 5. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. 
For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood very quickly that he was calling God his father. He doesn't argue with them. He just says, hey, my father. I mean, most common name he uses when he talks about God, my father. My father, he says, you should be glad I am working today because that is what my father's doing. But they really did not get it at all. First of all, you know, you are violating the law here. So there's no way that you are a child of God because you're breaking the law. And a child of God wouldn't break the law, you know, in their view. And you just called God your father. And you need to understand back then, they weren't even allowed to use his name. You know, today, today's day and age, you know, a kid says, Jesus, or, oh, God. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. In our family, we don't, we don't talk like that. We don't use God's name that way. Well, back then, it was even worse. Not worse, but you know what I'm saying. It was even more strict. They would say, well, you know, we're talking about G. And then they wait a few seconds. O. And then they would wait a few seconds and say D, you know, or however they spelt it in, in the Hebrew or whatever. You know, they, they would not put the letters together because you were not even supposed to speak his name. They would get to a place in a conversation and not say his name. They would even, you know, give each other the, the knowing looks. Well, you know who I'm talking about, you know. I mean, this was done out of respect. Or they would say, well, you know, the name they would give it other names to use instead of that name. They wouldn't say God. They wouldn't say Father. They wouldn't say Elohim. They wouldn't say Jehovah. They wouldn't say these things. So you could imagine when Jesus was, was there and he starts saying, Abba, or my father, or my daddy. Well, you know, what my dad does is what I do. I mean, they were kind of freaking out about this. Now, if you were a scribe and you got to a point, you know what a scribe is, right? Somebody who, right, you know, they would copy the Bible. You know, a scribe would be like the secretary or, you know, administrative assistant, sorry. Um, uh, you know, and they would copy. Well, the scribes would write down the, you know, they'd be copying the Bible. And any time they got to the name God, they would get up. They would go, they would wash their hands, and when I say their hands, I mean all the way up to here, okay? They would wash their whole arms, they would come back down, and they would start to write. And they were not to be interrupted until after they finished the name of God. It was even in the law that the king would be ignored if the king was trying to talk to you while you're writing the name of God down if you were a scribe. I mean, this was serious business. So you could imagine Jesus' words and how offensive they would be for the religious, you know, the, that religious uh, people, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was calling God his father. He says here, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself, but he can only do, or he can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. Whatever I see my dad do, that's what I do. Amazing thing here is, he knows that he's offending them, and he's not holding back. 
Jesus never holds back on truth. Now, when he does do the truth, a lot of times it'll come with grace, depending on the situation will be how, I don't want to say how truthful, but how forceful that truth will be, okay? It needs to come with grace. But sometimes truth has to be just front and center. But oftentimes they just want the grace. And when that happens, they get the raw truth sometimes. What my father does, I do. He goes on in verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. He's basically saying, you guys are lucky that I'm here. You get to see what my father's doing because you get to see what I'm doing. And we're going to do some incredible stuff. Verse 21, he goes on, it says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to, who, to whom he is pleased to give it. Jesus basically says, I have the power to, to, to raise the dead here. I have the power to give life away. Verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So Jesus is saying, it would be really wise for you guys to figure this out. To figure out who I am. Because it's not the Father who's going to judge you on this. You know, in the end, I'm the one that's going to judge you. I am the judge. Now, he'd already told Nicodemus that he didn't come to condemn, but to, to, but to give life, to save them. So he's basically giving them a warning. And there is time for you guys to figure it out. Don't let this time pass by. You know, we've all given those warnings, especially when it comes to children, right? You know, you give them one chance, you give them a second chance, and about the 20th chance, you're like, that's enough. Now, depending on parenting techniques, it could be the third chance that's enough, or it could be the 400th chance, you know. But, but we've all done that, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's going, you know, to honor something means to worship. And you need to figure out how to honor me, how to worship me. In verse 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Now we think that comes at the end of life, right? We always, that's what our view is, you know. I die and then I'll go be with Jesus. I'll go to heaven, right? Well, that is exactly true, but it also happens here and now. We get a part of heaven here and now because we've already crossed over from death to life. Our life just continues when we go to the grave. It's not over. Even the best religious person in the world will say, I'm not really sure if I have eternal life. And I'm talking about a religious person, not a saved person, not a, I'm in a Christ person. Often people are like, there's still more. I still have to do more. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't. Just believe in me. Believe that I am the Son of God, and you will have eternal life. This is powerful stuff. And even today we deal with this stuff because the church has convinced us, when I say the church, I'm talking about the church entity as a whole, across this nation, across this world, has convinced us it's all about serving. And sometimes 
That's wrong. You know, well, Pastor Allen will, uh, w- would like me to do more. And therefore, I'll feel better about myself. And the Lord will, will like me more because I serve more. And we get it backwards. When it's about the relationship with Jesus. I serve because of my relationship, because I want to please the Father. Not because the Father has a list of 20 things that I need to get accomplished this week. You see the difference? It's like when you're married. You don't do things just because you're married. You you do things because you want to please your spouse, right? Now, sometimes we accomplish that, and then sometimes we we don't, (laughs) you know? But the idea is marriage isn't like, okay, I'm married now, okay. No, marriage is exciting. It's that, that relationship. It's about living life together. And it's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus. Uh, we, are, we are his bride, and we want to please him. But when we read the words of Jesus, come to find out, we can know that we have eternal life. We don't have to guess it. Verse 25 Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed by this, for a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. My judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is another warning that Jesus is giving in the word. And they already know this because they had studied Daniel 12. They had studied all the Old Testament. And, and, you know, where it talks about the final judgment and the resurrection. And these religions out there will say, no, no, no. Well, you get reincarnated when you die. And that's false religion. They're like, you get a do-over. Well, that is wrong. That is not from the word of God. God came and said, there is a heaven and there is a hell and there's a resurrection of the righteous, the believers. And there's a resurrection and and a condemnation of those who don't believe. And he warns them and this warning is for us also. Even John warns us in the book of Revelation. And he was, you know, at this time he's on the island of Patmos and, and God showed him the final days. And, and I mean, we wish we, we understood more about those final days. We read it and we're so dead burned confused, right? I mean, I read it and I get all confused and everything. But, you know, but John tried to write it down so we might understand some of it. And in Revelation 20, he writes in verse 11, Then I saw a great great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from the presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Did you know what you do is recorded down? Ouch. 
You know, I, you, today's day and age and iPhones and everything, everything's recorded, right? And we're like, ooh. You know, companies, my wife just had a conference uh, in San Francisco, and, and one of the things that the company warned people about is everything lives on on the Internet. Don't do something stupid and get recorded, right? Well, guess what? Our actions are recorded in the book of life. What we do. He goes on and says in in verse 13, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. Anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, many religions around try to balance this, right? Well, do more good than evil. Now, I would say the same thing, but for completely different reasons. Because those religions say your work saves you. No, the only thing that saves you is belief in Jesus Christ and your name being written in the book of life. Which means that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That is why we do more good than evil, right? Jesus overtakes us, and the evil kind of slowly gets pushed out over time. And man, I wish it was instant, right? Oh, man, the things that we go through and we torture ourselves with certain sins and stuff, and we need to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit to get those sins out of our life and let Jesus take over. Now, the Word says they will know us by our love. And guess what? Our love produces actions. So I would say we need to do more good works, but that's not the idea that gets us into heaven because it's not. Our works, and I'd rather, I I, I really don't like that word. I would rather put the word worship in there. We worship God when we serve our neighbor. We worship God when we represent God out there in this world and we do what is right instead of what is wrong. It's worship. It's not works. Our love for our Savior produces good things and good fruit by the saving grace that comes before the works. And you should never confuse the two. Jesus is saying to them and to us, figure that out now, and that is the process that we're in right now, and this is what he wanted them to do, but he knew that these religious people wouldn't understand. He goes on in verse 31 and says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, okay? You have sent, uh, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it to you uh, it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works, with the, uh, works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. So let's talk about legal terms here, guys. Let's put aside my witness of myself. Because what what are we talking about these witnesses? One, the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, well, you won't even take that, he's saying. Well, let's talk about John, because you guys love John for a while. What did John say about me? Do you remember what John said? We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus is walking by, and he says, Behold, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So even John is testifying about me. But now, you know, now what about, you know, when I came out of the water? Did you hear anything about that? Some of you guys were probably there, you know, because these guys, many of them would just follow him around and confront him at different times. The voice of his father, you know, said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Verse 37, it says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard the voice nor seen his form, nor does the word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. What about his works? They won't even recognize Jesus by it. Even though they'd, they'd made a ruling talking about uh, healing, uh, yeah, basically, uh, what happens is this. You can't do the same job on the Sabbath that you do, do during the week. Okay? So Jesus, they were fine with him healing Monday through, through Friday night because the Sabbath, or Sunday through Friday night because the Sabbath started at, uh, at uh, I'm sorry, Friday night at, at, uh, when it got dark is when the Sabbath started, okay? And, and they were fine with him healing up to that point, but they had finally made a, an official ruling saying that Jesus' um, <coughs> profession was a healer, so therefore he couldn't heal on the Sabbath, Okay, so they were already out there trying to, <clears throat> trying to get him boxed into different things. But back in chapter 3, Nicodemus said, We Pharisees and Sadducees know that you are from God. In other words, they had seen his works. Interesting. Verse 39 says, You study the scriptures differently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. So you have my testimony. You have the Spirit's testimony. You have John's testimony. You have the Father's testimony. You have my works, and you have the scriptures. What more do you need, guys? You know, the Bible talks about how some people are blinded, right? And I feel like that now. I watch the news and some of the things, and some of uh, you know things that are happening in cities or or you know politicians and it's like they're completely 100% blind and you're like you don't see it and i think i'm the one that's crazy right and some of you would agree with that but that's a whole nother point but i mean i just shake my head and then i go back to god's word and it talks about how people will be blinded they won't even see the sin They won't even realize what they're doing. And this is what we're seeing back then and now. These guys were blinded. He's like, guys, you still won't believe. You have searched the scriptures and you cannot see it. You're not even willing to. You are not even willing to come to me. And this is where Jesus tells them the truth. He is always honest. Always. This isn't about scripture. This isn't about the the evidence. This isn't about whether I'm the Messiah or not because you have already decided and you're not even willing to come to receive life. Verse 41, he says, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know this, 
I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. How sad is that? Your God himself is saying, you don't have God's love in your heart. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but uh, do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses. Now he's really going after him. He's going, all that law that you really want to follow, all those little rules that you took, you know, the the 614 or 622, depending on how you count, um, you know, uh, all the stuff from Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and then all the extra rules that you added on to those, that's what condemns you. I don't even have to say a word. If you believe Moses... All right, let's go to 45, verse 45. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father, your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. In other words, the law. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me, but since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is saying, guys, you loved Moses. So for my last witness here, I'm going to call him. Do you know what book Jesus quotes the most in Scripture? It's a book that we all ignore. Deuteronomy. The writings of Moses. That's the most quoted Scripture by Jesus. He's saying, you love Moshe, in other words, Moses. You loved him. You read him. You quote him. You try to live by him. And you won't even believe him because you've missed him. You've missed it. How could this be? How could someone study the scripture as much as these guys have and miss the whole point? Well, guess what? It's not about knowledge. I mean, I grew up during Bible drill time, right? Somebody would say the scripture and you had the Bible closed and you would open it up and you would search. I mean, my wife was great at this, okay? And find it and point your finger to it and say, I have it or whatever, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And that's all great and wonderful to know the Bible. I, I'm not saying that was bad to do, okay? I, I don't mean that, please. But it's not about the knowledge. It's about the experience with God. It's about the relationship. I mean, it's one thing, oh, okay, I have the knowledge that I'm married with Lisa, you know, married to Lisa, I have the knowledge that I got married on, on December uh, 20, uh, 21st, 1993. Okay, I just dated myself a little bit there. You know, so then I just go on and live my life and never do anything with Lisa? No, knowledge means nothing. It's the relationship, right? It's the same thing with God. It's our relationship. What do we do with it? So how could you study the Bible and miss it? Well, first... You have a preconceived notion of what it's about before you read it. We don't sit down and say, Lord, open my mind to what you have to teach me. Or we don't even open it, just let someone else tell you what's in it. It becomes a good coffee table book. But I can tell you one thing, the more you read about Jesus, guess what you find out? He was not as nice as you thought he was. He tells them, 
you don't have the love of God in you. Find nice in that somewhere. You know, we're all like, God is love, which he is. But we forget about the pointed times that Jesus was just so straightforward. Secondly, you have other books that are at the same level as the Bible. In other words, you go to them more than you go to the Bible study. You don't open the word. Commentaries about the Bible are wonderful, but they don't take place of the word because there's no higher truth than the Bible itself. No tradition, no book, no person. The third thing that we do is proof text. A lot of people do this. And in the right way, it can be good to help you with your study of the of the word of God but used in the wrong way it takes you down the wrong path and what I mean is this proof text is when you have a concept and you go out there and you find verses and say well this proves what I think and oftentimes what you do is you take those out of context that's why I like to study the Bible through the book because I want to keep it in context now, I grew up with the topical church. There's not, nothing necessarily wrong with the topical church. You just have to be very diligent not to go off and go, well, what topic do I want to preach on? Let me find my three to four verses that match that. Let me come up with my three-point sermon that go with those three or four verses. Boom, I'm done, you know? And it's like, yeah, but you can get off onto your own thinking instead of what God is using this scripture for. Now, number four, last thing I would say on this is, over-focusing the scripture where you focus. What I mean is, you're looking out of a window and you're focused on this instead of walking outside and focusing on this. Okay? We do that with the word of God. Now, my wife and I, we had a conference in... Uh, in New York, or well, my wife, I say my wife and I, uh, she had a conference in New York and uh, way back, uh, I say way back, not really that long ago, but it feels like that long ago. And we did the touristy things while there, you know, toward the, the, you know, went to the top of the Empire State Building and some other buildings, and here's one of the pictures that I took. It's really cool at night to see all the lights, but, uh, uh, you know, the top of the Rockefeller Center, beautiful view, and the glass is in front of you, Okay. Now, it would have been really weird if somebody who, who walked up and said, beautiful view, huh? Uh, beautiful view, huh? And you're like, yeah, all the lights, and that's great. Best I've ever seen. But you're looking through it through glass. Now, when I was in the Philippines, uh, I should have got the picture out. Uh, I had this room when we uh, had a few days. We went up uh, uh, to this, or went down to this little resort area, and I had this room that literally looked right out on the ocean. Closed the doors, had all these glass panes, beautiful view. But is that the best view? No. Open the doors. That's a better view, right? That's getting into the Word. If a person standing in front of me, I would have been like, get out of my view. The problem is people approach scriptures this way. Oh, man, have you seen this? 
And what they're doing is they're looking, you know, at a window and not the view, not the bigger picture. Look, you know, they <clears throat> look at all the scripture, study all of it, not just parts of it. We like to cherry pick things. And God is like, no, 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 don't cherry pick. See who I am totally. So anyway, Jesus comes and says to these guys, you have missed it. And we have to talk and we have to pray and we have to say, Lord, we don't want to miss it. Show us. Show us. Well, let's jump into chapter 6. i got a few more minutes here. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore, the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of, uh, it's, uh, sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him. Now, the other Gospels record this also, and it's one of the only stories that's written in all four Gospels, and, and they all kind of give a, a different view. So I'll jump to Mark 6 here in a second, but what's going on here is Jesus is already in his second year of ministry at this point. Like I told you before, John doesn't go in chronological order, and it kind of drives people nuts. You're like, really, in chapter 4, I mean, or chapter whatever, or 6, and, and we're already at the second year of ministry? There was only, you know, that's what John does. He kind of skips around. But the disciples... They're not getting a day off. They're not getting any personal space. People are just following and flocking to Jesus, and they're, they're following him around the lake, and, and the disciples are, are kind of bugged uh, about this. Here's a, here's a picture of, the, of that area. And, you know, Jesus says, guys, let's go across the lake. Let's get over there. And Jesus, you know, he's also mourning that John the Baptist has just been executed by Herod at this point. And Jesus had said that there was no man or woman greater than John the Baptist. It's pretty cool to be said about you, you know? So we see how he feels about him. He's kind of mourning him. So you know this, he's going through this normal human grief process that we go through. So they get in the boats and they go across this large lake and the crowds are watching and they're kind of predicting where he's going to go and they start walking around the lake, okay? It's a pretty long walk, but they can make it over there to the other side. And they get across and there's another sea of people over there waiting, coming around the lake. And you can sense it. I mean, they're like, oh, man, we're not going to get any rest now. No vacation on the horizon. And they all need the rest. And all they have to offer to Jesus, you know, they're like, man. So Jesus tells all the people, go home. You're wrecking my vacation, right? No. And Mark, it says, but many who saw them, uh, saw them leaving recognized him and ran on foot from around the towns and got there ahead of them. And Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them. So he saw, you know, he saw them coming, and it says that they looked like they were, they were a sheep without a, uh, without a shepherd, and his heart was touched, so he taught all day long. And by this time, it was very late in the day, and his disciples came to him and said, look, man, this is a remote place. We, we gotta, it's already late. we got to get these guys out of here. Verse 36, send the people away so that they can go and to the surrounding uh, countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat because we're going to have a problem if they don't. Lord, they're tired. Send them away. 
There are about 5,000 families out there. You've taught them long enough. You, you, you've gone on long enough. You went over your time, Pastor. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And this is where it gets really weird. They're like, uh, did he just say we're supposed to feed them? You know, <laughs> what are we going to do, you know? Something's wrong with my hearing, Lord. You know, maybe if you speak a little louder here, you give them something to eat. I mean, he places the disciples in, a, in the middle of an impossible situation. Now watch this. Jesus, in his second year with these guys, he's going to start placing them in one impossible situation after another. Right after this, he puts them in a boat. And guess what happens? The wind and the waves come up, and that's for another time, okay? But the first year, they handled it pretty well. The second year, they got to watch out. Time for them to grow up a little bit. Time to, let's get rolling here. Let's go, guys. You give them something to eat. Time for you to step up. And they're like, Lord, this is impossible. And they quickly point this out. In John 6, he says to Philip, I think it's there. He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for the for the, uh, maybe I got it wrong. Lisa, you figure it out for me. Uh, where, where shall we buy bread for those people to eat? I mean, bread for 20,000 people. Okay, well, I'll just get right on that, Christ. You know. He asked, he asked this only to test him, for he had already had in mind what he was going to do. And, and you know, they're in the middle of an impossible situation. And, and maybe some of us might feel like that. Well, guess what? You may be in the center of God's will in the middle of an impossible situation. Have you thought about that? See, we think, oh, the devil's attacking us. And God's going, no, I'm just allowing this to happen so you'll recognize me. Or, or, or maybe it's not even about you. I'm allowing you to be in this possible situation so you can affect someone else for me. Something like that may help us develop our relationship with Jesus. And it may not be easy. God places you in the situations where you are. And we're like, Lord, this is impossible. And he goes, I know, but I love you. Impossible. That, mean, that, that means there's nothing that you can do to fix it, right? And he's like, that's true, Alan. There's nothing that you can do. This is why I gave you the Holy Spirit. This is why I gave you a helper. This is why you need me. This would mean you would need a miracle. No, Lord, I was just saying it was impossible. And Philip gets out his calculator and starts to say, man, it would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for even one to have a bite. Now, Philip would know. He is, he is from Bethsaida. He knows all of the restaurants around there. He has done the math. He's like, this is great, Lord. There's not enough money around here. You need to send them away. And in Mark 6, he says to them, <coughs> okay, then how much do you have? Well, not enough. I didn't ask. Guys, how, how much do we have? And, and I guess I'm right here. Verse 8, is that correct? Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon, Peter, uh, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves, and this is poor people's bread. 
and two small fish. He's got like five crackers and a couple of anchovies, okay? And then he says, how, but how far will they go among so many? I mean, it's kind of a stupid question, right? We all know the answer. I mean, it's like the disciples are looking at him and trying not to laugh. <laughs> I can't believe you said that to him, Andrew, you know? So he clarifies. They're all laughing. He's like, well, guys, I mean, he asked for, he asked for an inventory, so I gave him one, you know? What did you do, Peter? They're all like, okay, okay, knock it off. He's like, I'm not an idiot, guys. I know it's, it's not enough. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Okay, I can do that. Hey, everyone, sit down. And they start hollering out, everybody sit down. And G- Jesus says, here, you, you take it from here. And in verse 10, it goes, there, uh, there was plenty of, of grass in that place. So they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. And Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, they're probably thinking, what does he want me to do? I mean... Eat in front of them or something? He's like, no, guys, start, start passing it out. And as they started passing it out, more came, more came, more came. It was all there. And this is one of the coolest miracles. 20,000 people get to experience the same miracle. That's amazing. I mean, when a person is healed, it's amazing. But people will argue about that, right? But when you have 20,000 people no one can argue with that because they all saw it and they get to eat and they were stuffed by the end of the meal and it goes on in verse 11 and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted he did the same with the fish when they had all uh, had uh, all had enough to eat he said to his disciple gather the pieces that are left over let nothing be wasted so they gathered them uh, and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over from those who had eaten. I think the disciples had to really think about this one. I mean, even Judas, we could have sold all this and made a lot of money because that's what Judas was focused on. Verse 14, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is a prophet who has come to the world. Well, this story has so much application, I really don't know where to go with it. I pointed out a few along the way, but let me remind you a couple of them as we finish up here. One, God will give you impossible situations. You need to get over it and have a little faith. There's the truth. Get over it and have a little faith because the Holy Spirit is there to help you. That's the grace. Because after you're done, you will have more faith. If you are not in an impossible situation, then pray that God will send you one if you want to have more faith. In the end, the disciples were asking to see more. The rest of the book of John, you will see, it, it just keeps building their faith, building their faith. He allowed them to help with this miracle, and that's what's so cool about God. He allows us to be a part of the miracle. Secondly, the Lord seems to put us in impossible situations because he likes to work with us and worship with us. 
If you were God, you wouldn't use us to help you, would you? You just do it yourself. It's a lot easier. How do I know that? Because that's what I would do if I was God, right? Because that's the humanness in us. I mean, the angels marvel at the Lord. Why, why do you love these humans so much? Why do, you, why do you like them? They mess up everything. But the Lord works with us. He gives us these spiritual gifts, and he tells us to use them. We're like, okay, well, what is your plan? Oh, you, you mean I need to talk to the Lord about it? Yeah. Ask the Lord to start using your gifting. If you don't know what your gifting is, start asking the Lord, what is your gifting? And we're like, uh, this is where we need to be in the scripture more. Oh, Lord, do you want me to start using that right now? I mean, all we have is a, some fish and bread. We don't really have enough, so therefore, we got to have planning meetings, right? It's not really the time right now, Lord. It's not the time for sharing. I mean, look at what we have. We, we need to get away from this crowd. And the Lord's like, no, 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 bring that to me. And when we bring it, at the end of the experience, we have basketfuls left over. What is sad is how many times we sit in the corner and eat our lunch and not give it over to him. We don't give the things over to God. And others don't get any food. And that's what's sad. I'm praying that whatever the Lord wants you to give over to him, that you will do that. That that would be your attitude. I'm here to worship you, not serve. I'm here to worship you, Lord. And I give this to you. And then we say, can I participate in whatever you're doing, Lord? He's not going to say, no way, get out of here, Alan. Put your name in there. He's not going to say, no way. He's going to go, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for. Well, let's pray as the worship team comes and finishes the last song. And I think uh, Liliana and Pam is going to come up here. And if you guys want any prayer, please uh, come up here and they will, we're going to start doing this every week and, and uh, uh, you can uh, quickly get a word of prayer for you. Let's pray. Lord, we're just so thankful. So thankful for your truth that's in the word, so thankful for your grace that's there. Lord, I pray that for those that may be in impossible situations, that they see your light. They see your guidance. For those that aren't in that situation, Lord, that when we get there, that we see that. We pray that we, we start looking around for ways to worship you through serving. You want us to be used. You desire to use us. You're just waiting for us to turn around and recognize you in this life. And I pray that we do that. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.